is from Romans 8:28. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. Hear now the word of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let us ask for help. Father in heaven, we come now to your word in which you have chosen to reveal yourself. In fact, I believe, Father, we shall set our minds attention perhaps on one of the most glorious promises ever offered the promise of your gracious, absolute sovereignty in our life for our good. Help this morning to change us as we hear from you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our brother Jeff mentioned America's great awakening. That awakening was brought about, or God chose to bring it about, largely through a hero of mine, a man named George Whitfield, who was perhaps one of the greatest English-speaking preachers ever. I appreciate a story about Whitfield when he was traveling with a companion as he was a traveling preacher in this day in America, and he learned of a widow with a large family who was unable to pay her rent. And therefore, the landlord confiscated all of the widow's furniture. Well, when Whitfield heard of this, he gave this widow five guineas in order to pay her rent and to have her furniture returned to her. Well, when Whitfield's traveling companion realized what he had done, he knew that this large sum of money was money that Whitfield could ill afford, and he commented as such. Whitfield responded to his friend by saying, when God brings a case of need before us, it is that we may relieve it. And so the matter was settled. Well, they continued to travel on down the road, and not long after that conversation, they were confronted by a robber. This robber demanded that both gentlemen give all the money that they have. Whitfield had none. He noted the irony to his friend as the robber departed, how it was better for him to give his money to a needy widow than to a robber. Well, they traveled down the road, and the robber returned once again. This time, he demanded Whitfield's coat. Well, Whitfield consented to give him his coat, but he asked for the robber's tattered coat in return, for it was an extremely cold day. And so the robber consented, gave him his old tattered coat, and took Whitfield's nice preaching coat, and off he went. Well, it was not long after that that the robber was coming upon them a third time, this time at a quick gallop. And Whitfield and his companion were not sure what else he would ask of them, and they were somewhat intimidated by the prospect. And so they galloped on in their horses and outran the robber, finding refuge in a village. Well, it's in that village that Whitfield realized what the robber was after as he took off that old tattered coat. 
for in it he not only found five guineas, but a hundred guineas more. (laughs) And we look at this story, don't we? And the verse that perhaps comes to mind is the verse we shall set our heart's attention on. All things work together for good. For those who love God. For those called according to His purpose. But Pastor Stephen Davies asks, what would if we say if Woodfield never got the robber's coat? Would we still quote Romans 8.28? Or what if Whitfield had his horse stolen? Or what if his friend was killed? Or what if Whitfield himself was killed? Do we still say all things work together for good? For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose? What, what, what about around the world? As we know, our brothers are arrested for their faith in Christ. Or a famous pastor's son commits suicide. Or brothers and sisters deal with mercy carriages and cancer and children and job losses. What do we do then with Romans 8.28? Or what about the mundane realities in our lives? Traffic tickets and broken appliances and children bickering and burnt dinners. Does Romans 8.28 apply to those issues? Or what about sin? What about divorce and sexual harassment and bomb blasts that end marathons and disunity in the church? At those times, do we say all things work together for good? Or what happens if the sin is mine? What if I'm the one who commits adultery? What if I'm the one who steals or kills? Do I still say about me? All things work together for good. We come this morning to study perhaps one of the most cherished scriptures in all the Bible. Perhaps next to John 3.16, Romans 8.28 is the most valued by God's people, and I believe rightly so. This verse, above all else, I think is a refuge for many people who are troubled and tired, who turn to Romans 8.28 to find strength and comfort. At times when life is painful, seemingly pointless, people cling to this verse, believing that even in the midst of their misery, God is working all things together for their good. It is a pillow upon which the weary Christian may rest his head. It is rightly a cherished verse. And yet, quite often, I believe a misunderstood one as well. And so let's be clear. God is not saying in this verse that bad things do not happen. That is not what Romans 8.28 tells us. Moreover, it does not mean that bad things will be immediately reversed into good things. It does not mean if you lose your job, don't worry, Romans 8.28, you'll find a better job. Because sometimes you don't get a better job. Sometimes you don't get another job at all. It does not mean the cancer is healed or you get married or get out of prison. Friends, I think sometimes we use this verse as kind of a Christian rabbit's foot whenever trouble comes upon us that we rub and tell us that everything is going to work out for it to be easy and happy and comfortable for us. That is not what this verse teaches. It is rather a promise from God that when bad things happen, difficult and challenging things, they never happen by accident. They always happen according to God's plan, and God's plan, God's purpose for you is good. Nothing will happen in your life that will hinder God's purpose. 
You know, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11, we have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. He works all things according to His will. Nothing will stop God's plan for you. No tragedy, no trial, no distress, no danger, no suffering, sickness, or sin will hinder God's plan for you. Nothing will stop it, and His plan for you is good. And if you believe Romans 8.28, then I believe this is your refuge for times of trouble. I believe this is your shelter in which you shall flee. I believe this to be your anchor in which you shall hold on to in the midst of storm. I appreciate what John Piper writes in his wonderful book, Future Grace. He says, nothing can blow you over when you are inside the walls of Romans 8.28. Outside Romans 8.28, all is confusion and anxiety and fear and uncertainty. Outside this promise, there are the straw houses of drugs and alcohol and numbing television and dozens of futile diversions. There are the slat walls and tin roofs of fragile investment strategies and fleeting insurance coverage and trivial retirement plans. There are the cardboard fortifications of deadbolt locks and alarm systems and anti-ballistic missiles. Outside are thousands of substitutes for Romans 8.28. But once you walk through the door of love into the massive, unshakable structure of Romans 8.28, everything changes. There comes into your life stability and depth and freedom. You simply can't be blown over anymore. The confidence that a sovereign God governs your good, for your good, all the pain and pleasures you will ever experience is an incomparable refuge and security and hope and power in your life. When God's people really believe, live by the promise of Romans 8.28, from the measles to the mortuary, they are the freest and the strongest and the most generous people in the world. And this is the passage, this shelter, this refuge, this anchor that we shall consider this morning. If you are here and you are a Christian, my goal for you as we apply this text to your life is that you would rejoice in God's comforting providence, that it would produce stability in your life, it would produce freedom in your life, it would produce joy in your life, it would produce hope in your life, that you may leave this place knowing my God reigns and he does for my good. You know the power of hope, friends? You know what hope can do in your life? Hope can overcome discouragement. Hope can overcome depression. Hope can overcome crankiness and fear and suicide. Hope can give new life to old marriages and new life to old churches and new life to old jobs and new life to old dreams and new life to old relationships. I want you to leave here with hope that your God reigns for your good in all things. That's my goal for you this morning. And if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, we are delighted that you are here with us. I have a goal for you as well, my friend, that you would hear us rejoice in this glorious promise that God reigns for our good and you would grow envious. And you would say, I want that. My life seems pointless. I want a good, benevolent God reigning over me for my good. And you would bow your knee to Jesus Christ, the risen one as your Savior and God. 
four realities in this promise. Number one, God's promise is reliable. Number two, God's promise is comprehensive. Number three, God's promise is good. And number four, God's promise is for Christians. First of all, consider with me, God's promise is reliable. You notice the first couple words here in verse 28. And we know, he says, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. This is something that the Bible says we don't wish for. We don't want necessarily all things to work for our good, although we do want it. It doesn't say that. It's not something we dream that would be true. This is something the Bible says we know to be true. That we may have confidence that it is true, that his promise is reliable. We know this to be true. Now, he does not say here that we see that all things work together for our good, does he? Because most of the time we don't see. Most of the time in the midst of hardship and trouble, we have no idea how this is going to work out for our good. How is he going to bring good out of this evil? I trust one day we'll see it. I trust when you ascend to the heights of heaven and are able to look down upon the plan of God's life, you will see how it all fits together. In fact, one pastor says the most repeated phrase in heaven is going to be, well, what do you know? Right? I think he may be right. We may look back and see that teacher or that car accident or that broken appliance or that time of prayer or that frustration or that discipline of that child or, or that sermon I preach. Well, now I see how it all works together. That cancer, that broken relationship, that disunity, that bomb blast or that, that blast in West Texas. Oh, now, well, what do you know? Now I see it, how it all works together. We don't see now. We know now, we know that God works all things together for our good. One day we shall see. By the way, I want you to understand this text also does not say we feel that all things work together for good. Sometimes we feel the opposite. Sometimes we feel abandoned. Sometimes we feel overcome. And we don't know how we're going to make it through the day. We feel like we're drowning in a sea of confusion. Sometimes we feel like we're being crushed under the weight of the burden in our life. Sometimes we share this with Christians. We share our challenge. We share the difficulty in which we're having, the turmoil that's in our heart. And many times, well-meaning Christians hand us Romans 8.28 like it's some medicine from the doctor. Here, take this and you'll feel better in the morning. And what happens is we create a fake Christianity in which there's turmoil going on in our heart, but for some reason we think Romans 8.28 makes that illegitimate, and so we pretend everything is okay. Though we're frustrated and confused, we're sad, we're weeping inside, we can't actually let people know that, because for some reason we believe that Romans 8.28 says, no, we are supposed to feel like everything's roses, like everything's wonderful. But friends, that's not what the Scripture tells us. It says we know that this is true. We may not always feel that it is true. In your life, there will be times of sorrow and sadness, hardship and difficulty, and you'll feel abandoned by God, perhaps, and you will cry out to God. You'll feel alone. It's not true, but you may feel it. And it's at those times we must fight for faith. We must fight to believe the truths that we know. Fight to believe Romans 8.28. I'm not alone. He is ruling in my life. And pray to God that your heart would follow that which you know to be true. Friends, I tell you this promise is reliable. The question I have for you this morning is do you trust him? Do you trust him in the midst of the situations in which you come in this room this morning? That he is working in every single detail. Do you know that to be true? 
The Bible says you ought to know it, that his promise is reliable. But secondly, we see that God's promise is inclusive. He says here, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. What works together for good? All things. All things. Big things. New babies. Early retirement. Little things. Apple pie. A cup of coffee. Good things. Intimacy with your spouse. Promotion at work. Encouragement from a friend. Refreshing rain. Peace on earth. Bad things. Trouble with your spouse. Being passed over for a promotion. Being backstabbed by a friend. Tornadoes. And war on earth. All things. I believe means all things. And Paul is no idealist. He doesn't deny that there is trouble in this world. In fact, he keeps repeating himself over and over again in Romans chapter 8. He said in verse 18 that we have sufferings in this present time. In verse 20, he says there's futility in creation. In verse 21, he says all this world is subject to decay. In verse 23, he says we groan as we await the redemption of our sickly and weak and painful bodies. In fact, note verse 39, a text we shall consider in the coming weeks. When he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And so he undoubtedly concludes all these things into all things. And what he comes and tells us is that we know that all things, whether it be suffering or futility or corruption or sickness or pain or tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, all these things are working together for your good. Now, friends, let's be clear. He is not saying that all things are good. Some things are evil. Some things are bad. Hate is not love. Death is not life. Disunity is not unity. There are many bad things in this world. All things are not good. But all things, including the bad things, are turned by God for our good. Are meant by God for our good. The great Old Testament example of this is, of course, the life of Joseph. Who was betrayed by his brothers. Separated for his entire adult life from his father sold into slavery, sexually harassed, falsely accused, falsely imprisoned, and forgotten in a dungeon. All these things are evil things. And yet Joseph, looking back on his life, declares, if you will, the Old Testament version of Romans 8.28 in Genesis 50 and verse 20, saying, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I want you to hear what he says. You meant evil. It was evil. God meant good. You see the purpose in this, by the way. You intended, you meant, you purposed, you planned for my evil. But God, in your evil, meant, purposed, planned, intended, good. This tells us that God doesn't come at the end of the evil and fix it, right? He's it's not tragedy hits and God shows up and says, okay, I know how to take care of this. I could turn this around for your good. No, friends, the Bible's not telling us is that God's not an ambulance driver. 
He doesn't show up at the wreck and say, okay, I'm really good. I could put you back together. He's not the guy that we call when we are in trouble necessarily who comes and is Mr. Fix-It. No, he actually means through the event for our good. He rules over it all. This is what Joseph is saying. God did not watch the evil events unfold in my life without a plan or purpose. He meant all this evil to be for my good. My brothers meant it for evil. God planned it for good. In fact, he'll say earlier in Genesis 45 and verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. Right? The brothers sold him as a slave. And he says, in being sold as a slave, God was sending me to save. He meant it for good. And by the way, who's good? Often I think we say, well, of course, Joseph is referring to his own good. You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good for me. But that's not what the text says, if you read it carefully. Listen to Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so what he's saying to his brothers says, you meant evil, but God meant good for you. Even in your sin of selling me as a slave, God ruled over it, ruled through it to bring it about for your preservation, for your good. Friends, God ordains, if you will, allows, means, intends, purposes, whatever happens in your life to come against for you, for your good. Whether it's evil against you or hardship against you or suffering against you, none of it will frustrate God's plans for you. He rules over you. This means there are no accidents for us. He's ruling over all things. And so I ask you this morning, what troubles do you bring into this auditorium? I mean, what is it in your life that you wish was not there? Or, or what is it that you wish was there and is not? Maybe it keeps you awake at night. Causes concern in your heart. What troubles you? I tell you, based upon the authority of God's word, whatever it be, it is meant by God for your good. He means all things for your good. If your spouse leaves you, that will not stop his plan for your good. If an accident cripples you, that will not stop his plan for your good. If a drunk driver robs you of a loved one, that will not stop his accident for your good. If a coworker lies about you, that will not stop his purpose for you good. All things is used by God for your good. We don't always enjoy them, but he tells us he's using them for our good. Do you trust him? In the midst of your pain today and the suffering and and the things that frustrate you, do you trust him? Do you believe that though you may not enjoy it, your loving father is using it for your good? He calls for you to believe in him. Of course, this raises the question, well, what is then our good? This leads us to the third point this morning, that God promise, promise is good. We see this, and we've already established this a number of times, when he says he works all things together for your good. Well, let me tell you what good is not. Good is not your comfort. It doesn't say God works all things together for your comfort or for your ease or for your bank account or for your health. It does not say that God works even all things together for your happiness. This is not the promise that everything turns out okay, that it's always nice weather and good friends and a healthy body. 
That is not what God is saying at all. That's not the good in which he is describing. In fact, I love the story in which Paul is sailing to Rome in Acts chapter 27 and a storm comes upon the ship. And then all the sailors think they're going to drown and they start tossing cargo overboard in order to lighten the ship. And they think they're going down and they're all panicked. Well, an angel comes and appears to the apostle Paul. And he says to him, I bring you good news. You're going to be saved. But the ship is going to run aground. Which is somewhat puzzling to me. Because if God went to all the trouble of sending an angel, why can't he just take the ship to shore? Or at the least, just pick up Paul and fly him over to the island. But Paul says, no, wait a second. He has a message. We're all going to be okay, even though the ship is going down. In fact, he says in Acts 27 and verse 25, I have faith in God. Faith that everything will turn out right. Faith that it's smooth sailing from here on out. No, he says, I have faith in God. We must run aground. That's what I trust. God's in control, and we're going for a swim. God's in control and will be tossed by waves. Our lungs will be filled with water and we will be terrified. But God is in control. Somehow we get in, this, in our minds, we have this idea that we expect ease from God throughout this life. Good friends and good weather and good health and a happy spouse and enough money. Certainly the boats of believers don't sink, right? Well, friends, Scripture tells us something completely different. He does not promise you a long and happy life. He does not promise you that every difficulty leads to something better. What he promises you is your good. Now, the problem is, is that your good and God's good may not be the same good. All right? If you have children, you know all about this. Children think something's good for them, but God has given them parents because they know better. Well, you have a parent. His name is God, and he knows what is better for you. Your good may not be like his good. He tells us his good in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Here it is. You want to know what your, what's for your good? To be conformed to the image of his son. That's his, your good. To become like Jesus. This is what God thinks is good. He thinks this is, in fact, the best for you, that you may become more like Christ. And so what he will do is he will give you happy marriages and a nice car and, and a satisfying job and, and Duke national titles so that you may learn to be appreciative to God. And then at times he may give you troubled marriages and broken cars and a hard job that you may learn to trust God that he may have to defeat an idol in your life or remove greed from your life or destroy pride in your life or send you on the mission field or, or move you in a certain direction in order to conform you into Christ's likeness. God is doing something in your life, friends, I think is far greater than you have any idea. He wants so much more for you than you can possibly dream or think. I love what C.S. Lewis wrote. Imagine yourself as a living house God comes to re- in to rebuild the house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks and the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up a tower, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace, for he intends to come and live there. 
Friends, I tell you that God is working for your eternal, glorious, Christ-likeness good. Do you trust him? Do you trust him in all things? He is doing this work. The last thing I'd like to share with you this about this promise is that it's not for everyone. It is for Christians. You notice there are two conditions that he puts on this promise. He says, first of all, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. There are two things that must be true of you in order for this promise to be for you. You must love God and you must be called according to his purpose. Now, um, if you don't love God, this promise is not for you. If you're not called according to God's promise, purpose, this promise is not for you. And so what does he mean here? What is, well, first of all, consider to love God. He says, for those who love God. Now, we won't spend much time here. I think it's pretty simple. But I want to be clear. He's saying it's not for those who love God's gifts. It's for those who love God himself. And we've seen in Romans 8, our study here, that God is just unfolding for us gift after gift after gift. God gives good gifts. Forgiveness, justification, providence, heaven, no hell. And we, we rightly delight in these gifts and want these gifts. But who are we to love? Not simply the gifts, but the one who is giving. In fact, these gifts just simply tell us more about who God is. He's a forgiving God, and he's a justifying God, and he's a ruling God, and he's a heaven-creating God. And we ought to delight in him. We ought to love him. We ought to want him. Last night at dinner, my four-year-old son, Gideon, looked at me and says, Daddy, God is my treasure. And I said, Amen. Do you want to preach tomorrow? I like that message. We ought to love God. It's not His gifts are my treasure, but God Himself is my treasure. That's what it means to love God. Friends, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I tell you based upon the Word of God, you do not love Him. You do not love God. You may think you do. It is a lie. You've been deceived. I stand upon the authority of God's word this morning. The Bible tells us if you are not a follower of Christ, you do not love him. Whoever does not have the son does not love the father. That's what scripture tells us. And so I encourage you, I plead with you, pick up a gospel this week. Look at Jesus. You know, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Consider his love and his mercy, his might and his power, his courage, his compassion. Consider the cross, consider the empty tomb, read the book of Acts, see how God takes wicked people, redeems them into people full of kindness and generosity. See what God has done, consider who he is, and maybe you'll conclude, I do love him. He is glorious, I love him. And you bow your knee to Jesus as your Savior and Lord, and I tell you, if that happens to you this week, all things will work together for your good because you love God. Some of you that perhaps here are not a Christian and I say things like that and you have no interest in considering God. Right? You're just wondering when I'll stop talking. Right? You, you want to watch TV. That's what you're thinking about. You want to get out of here so you could go to lunch. I understand that. I was once in that place. But I do want to tell you, uh, rather frankly, based upon God's word, in fact, Romans chapter 2 tells us that not only do does this promise not hold for you, but rather all things that God gives you are storing up for wrath against you. That as you neglect him and the kindness that he's brought upon you, you will be accountable for that one day. I want you to know that. So I don't think this is silly or trivial. I think your eternity is at stake. God has been so incredibly good to you and kind to you, even this very moment, lending you breath to breathe. And you still refuse him.
even though he offers you grace and mercy. I pray God would change your heart. Well, of course, he says this promise is not only for those who love God, but those who are called by God. So what does it mean to be called by God? Well, I don't think he means whoever hears the gospel call. In fact, he uses this phrase in verse 30, right in the middle. He says, and those whom he called, he also justified. And so the called people who he's referring to are the same people who are justified. So it's not everyone who hears the gospel who are called in this general sense, but those who hear a call and believe who love God. In fact, what what does our call by God have to do with our love for God? Well, friends, I believe that the reason you love God today is because that God has called you. I believe his call enables your love. In fact, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 as we finish up our time this morning. Uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is one book after the book of Romans. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we read in verse 22. For Jews demanded a sign and Greeks seeked wisdom. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, there's our phrase, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so Paul says, I'm preaching the gospel. And for many people, Jesus seems foolish and silly and weak. But there are a group who are called by God. And they see Jesus as powerful and mighty and winsome and glorious. You see, to be called by God is to be given by God ears to hear the gospel and a heart to rejoice in Jesus. I like the illustration that has been often given uh, uh, to, to explain this call. That before you were called, it was like you were sleeping. And you were in your bedroom sleeping, and while you were sleeping, you were dreaming of Jesus. And you dreamed of Jesus, and he just seemed silly to you. He just seemed weak and odd to you. And there's nothing attractive about him at all. In fact, you didn't understand why everybody gets so excited about Jesus. There's a whole group of Americans that are so excited about Jesus. And you think they're kind of fanatical and, and radical and extreme. Why, why do they get so worked up about him? And you have this dream about Jesus. And then one day Jesus walks into your bedroom. Not in silliness and foolishness, but in the glory of resurrection power and Calvary love. And there he stands by your bedside. And then in comes the Holy Spirit and he hovers over your sleeping little mind. And he whispers to you, awake, get up. And you open your eyes. And there Jesus stands at your bedside. He does not look silly to you at all. But he looks powerful and loving. And you now realize all your previous thoughts about Jesus have been the product of a sleeping mind. And that he has given you eyes to see him. And you see him in the radiance of the glory of God, and you love him. You delight in him. I think this is what it means to be called by God. To be given a heart of flesh, to have that heart of stone taken out, and to give it a heart to love God, to be woken from our slumber. And the glorious thing is that if God calls you, he will keep you. Yeah, I don't know if you ever fear, what if I stop loving God? What if one day he begins to seem foolish to me? What if I just walk away and just give up this whole follow Jesus um, business that I've been giving my life to? What if my heart changes? Well, you know, the Bible tells us that if he's called you to love him, he will keep you loving him. 
The Bible says in Jude chapter 1, to those who are called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Friends, if you've been called by God this morning to love him, he will keep you in that love for him. For he has called you. In fact, called you according to his purpose. His purpose, as we've already seen, is to make us like our older brother. To make us like Jesus. And so I tell you as we end this morning, life is not promised to be easy to you or comfortable. There will be bad things in your life and even evil things. But I tell you on God's word, all things are working together for your good. In fact, I believe all things from the beginning of your life to the end of your life and on to eternity are working to make you like Jesus. Do you trust him? Do you believe this to be true in the midst of your sorrow and trouble and hardship? Does your faith work? Is it strong when things are difficult? I think he wants to know, do you trust me? In fact, I think this promise is so powerful that it will set you free if you trust him from worry, from anxiety. I tell you this morning, be free from fear. All things work together for your good. I tell you this morning, be free from uncertainty. All things work together for your good. Be free from crankiness and frustration. All things work together for your good. Let hope abound in Hamilton Baptist Church. All things work together for our good. Let power abound in Hamilton Baptist Church. All things work together for our good. Let courage abound in Hamilton Baptist Church. For all things work together for our good. Let enemy-loving, unity-creating, cheek-turning, generous-living, grace-giving, risk-taking abound. For all things work together for our good. Your God reigns today, and He reigns for your good, and forever shall do you trust Him. A.M. Everton, Overton trusted him. As we end this morning, years ago, he penned his affirmation of that trust, saying, my father may twist and turn, my heart may throb and ache, but in my soul I'm glad I know he maketh no mistake. My cherished plans may go astray, my hopes may fade away, but still I trust my Lord to lead for he doth know the way. Though night be dark and it may seem that day may never break, I'll pin my faith, my all in him. He maketh no mistake. There's so much now I cannot see, my eyesight far too dim. But come what may, I'll simply trust and leave it all to him. For by and by the mist will lift and plain it all he'll make. Through all the way, though dark to me, he made not one mistake. Let us give him thanks. I'm not sure if there is a more glorious promise in your scripture. Perhaps there is, Father, but my heart is captured by the one in which we have studied this morning. 
that whatever may befall us, whether good or bad, pleasant or unpleasant, righteous or wicked, you are ruling over it all. And you are ruling for our good. Oh, I believe if we truly believe this, we would look so different from this world. Our hearts, our attitudes, our hopes, our dreams, our fears would all be washed away for you throughout our life in every detail have not made one mistake. And you are making us back into what we were created for, that we may be like God, that we may be your image bearers. And so we place ourselves in your hands. And we say to a good and glorious God, do what you will, for we trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.